a city divided, a family fractured, two brothers caught between past and present. Published by Knopf Books for Young Readers, Berliners, a new novel by National Book Award nominee Vesper Stamper, is a riveting story about the rivalry between two brothers living on opposite sides of the Berlin Wall during its construction in the 1960s, and how their complicated legacy and dreams of greatness will determine their ultimate fate. This powerfully prescient and haunting book is a perfect gift for young readers and has a lot to offer to grown-ups as well. But then again, I am biased, as yours truly had the honor and the pleasure of narrating the audio version of this wonderful novel. So please, support free-thinking, independent artists, and purchase Berliners by Vesper Stamper from your favorite bookseller today. Make sure to check out the link in the show notes below. Hello there, you beautiful people. I've got a question for you. Do you drink coffee or tea? Of course you do, you beautiful bastard. And that is precisely why I want to tell you about my sponsor, Twin Engine Coffee. Twin Engine Coffee grows and roasts specialty-grade coffees right on the farms in Central America. And guess what? If you happen to be a snob like me and are much too pretentious to drink coffee, you can enjoy some Keturah tea, my personal favorite, which is made from the dried fruit of the coffee plant. You take you some ginger root, a couple lemon slices, some honey, and a dash of cayenne powder, and you'll have an even sexier concoction than all the hipsters tapping away at their laptops at that high-end cafe around the corner. So again, if you enjoy great coffee or tea, support small business and this podcast by ordering from TwinEngineCoffee.com slash Clifton Duncan. Again, that is TwinEngineCoffee.com slash Clifton Duncan. There's a link in the show notes below. And now, enjoy the show. Hello, ladies, gentlemen, and as always, everyone in between. My name is Clifton Duncan. This is, as always, my podcast. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. We have a very, very exciting guest today. I think you're going to learn a lot and uh, glean a lot from this conversation. Um, as always, you know, if you're watching on YouTube, please like and share and subscribe. If you if you love it, share it with your friends. If you hate it, share it with your enemies. However you're consuming it, um, tell people about it. Leave some good reviews and let's get going. Uh, today we have a wonderful, wonderful guest uh, named Mary McDonald Lewis. Uh, and it's going to be, I think, probably one of the most eloquent and well-spoken podcasts you will ever hear in your life because, uh, well, I'll let her tell it. Mary, why don't you introduce yourself to the fine, fine people out there? Well, thanks, Clifton. It's great to be here with you and with your listeners. And I wish you great good luck in your in your growing army of of um of friends here today uh i'm just pleased to be with you you know i've long admired you i've followed your story and i've admired your work uh both on stage and off 
as a as a thinker and a speaker and as somebody of great courage. So it's it's a real pleasure to be here. You and I have you know very parallel lives as storytellers, don't we? Mm. I exist primarily on the voiceover side. I've been a voice actor for about 40 years now. My first role in the business was as Lois Lane in Super Friends. And people might remember me as the voice of characters like Lady J and G.I. Joe and Maven nice. on Batwoman. Um, I just recently starred as Ivan, the voice of, <clears throat> excuse me, Buzz Lightyear's ship in, in the movie of the same name. Um, I also am a bit of pop culture as the voice of OnStar. I'm the voice that said, welcome to OnStar when you mm. got the car and turned on the machine. So I've been at that game for a really long time. And for about the past 20 years, I've been a dialect coach in film and television, helping people sound like where they're supposed to be from. Mm. And Clifton, as you know, prior to that, I was a dialect coach also for theater. And that's kind of what led me to sitting in this chair with you today. And that is that my journey as an artist, as a storyteller, who became increasingly aware of the increasing limits on my ability to tell my stories. Um, here in Portland, Oregon, which is something of an epicenter, as you know, yeah. uh, I was the city and even the state's kind of go-to dialect coach. I coached at, I coached every show at the two largest equity houses in town. And then really every other theater in town who needed uh, language accent or dialect work, they would call me and I would come in and, and coach their shows. But little by little, the woke waters rose. It began with an interest in diversity and very quickly expanded to all of the kinds of things that pronouns and, and demands for appropriate pronouns, um, which as we know is compelled speech and therefore um, opposes our beautiful First Amendment. Uh, those waters rose as well. And little by little, I began to realize that, wow, what everyone else thinks is good, I think is not good. And I think it's counter to the reason we're all in this room, right? Do, do you mean good as in uh, uh, virtuous or good as in uh, oh. quality? Okay, <laughs> as in holy. Oh my goodness, there were lighthouses virtue signaling all over Portland, <laughs> Oregon. And um, and to just to give a, a little intro into how I ended up an outcast in Portland, Oregon, and, and, and how I then had the great blessing of being denied work here, which then set me free to come to this work, the work that we're doing, and, and uh, the work that people that we so admire are doing uh, all around the world right now is it came from a from a small thing that exploded into a big thing. And I know that sounds familiar to you. Mm. And it began with me being criticized on social media for posting an image of uh, 45, Trump, 45, tilted sideways with an international no sign going across it, cleverly, cleverly, um, positioned such that it ended up looking like a swastika somehow. It was a, it was just a, a brilliant, um, it was a brilliant uh, feat of graphic art. 
I posted it, I was approached online by um, a woke individual who said, uh, Jewish people are asking that that be taken down. It's it's triggering. So then, so so you're so you posted an anti-Trump um, uh, meme, and people yeah. were offended by that. But it's it's odd to me because I remember when Trump was elected, and I I was sort of astounded. I mean, I didn't vote for him, but I I thought the reaction to him was so uh, I- extreme, and you know you you couldn't escape um, the anti-Trumpism. But so it's interesting to hear that in Portland, one of the most woke cities on the face of the earth they yes. were offended that you posted this um, this meme yes and it was it, it, it was certainly um appropriate and and would have been lauded at an earlier time to post this thing but it was woker it was woker <laughs> in the woke olympics to say you're hurting jews feelings the jews have spoken and the jews want you to take this down and i wrote uh this person back and i wrote her back quite earnestly and said, this is so interesting. Can you tell me where the complaints are coming from? And can you tell me how the Romney feel, how the Jehovah's Witnesses feel, how the homosexuals feel, and how all the other people who died in the Holocaust feel about, uh, their descendants feel about this, this particular thing. Long story short, there was a post on Facebook that was responded to by almost 900 people hmm. uh, damning those of us who said, it seems like we should be able to post this. Well, the story made it into Portland Center Stage, the largest equity house in town. And I was called into one meeting where I said, someone brought up pronouns and I said, oh my God, I think we should just all be called it. Oh boy. Yeah, I had no <laughs> idea. I had no idea that I had just lit the match and thrown it into the dynamite. And it was a a private conversation in a private office between myself and one other person, a longtime friend. Um, But that friend went to HR. HR called me for a quiet chat down at the local Starbucks. And I was taught that Portland Center Stage had embraced call-out culture, that I was being called out. And that, um, and when I inquired, I said, well, does that mean that I can call out people at Portland Center Station? No, 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 absolutely not. No, you're white and you can't. And I just started to think to myself, this is wrong. I mean, wasn't your, didn't you have a similar experience as you began to, to sense and feel that that the limits being put on us were- Yeah, well, you know, well, what I was going to ask you was when when you began to sense that something had shifted. I know for myself, it was around uh, 2014. I mean, I had learned to kind of shut up, but uh, but I, I know in 2014 when all the Michael Brown stuff was going on, and um, you know, and, and people were saying "hands up, don't shoot," and yet you know, the Washington Post had actually done really really good reporting on this story, and you know, they posted diagrams from the medical examiner. I mean, the medical examiner hired by the Michael Brown family, um, ballistic evidence, physical evidence, uh, uh, forensic evidence. And uh, it all supported uh, Officer Darren Wilson's story. And yet, um, I kept seeing all these senators, all these celebrities, a lot of my colleagues and peers continue, exactly, continually uh, uh, putting their hands up and, and lying about this. Um, at the same time, I, you know, had, I mean, I'd, always, I'd always been very skeptical of the, um, 
of the news, ironically, because I followed uh, progressive journalists like like Glenn Greenwald, who who himself is now on the wrong side of um, of the quote unquote woke left. But, uh, you know, he was consistent in his criticisms of the press during the Bush and the Obama administrations. So I'd already had a sort of cynical eye towards towards the media. But then when I saw that and then there was a big kerfuffle um, known as Gamergate, which happened. Um, sure, I've, I've, I've covered that on 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 um, this channel as well. And um, I, I saw secondhand um, how the progressive machine operates uh, the media, how they dismiss or or ignore or they denigrate minorities, racial minorities, sexual minorities, women who you know go against the grain, um, how they sort of gatekeep stories and how they you know they they shut down any kind of conversation. Um, and so I think with that level of awareness, you know, I mean, it was still fine. I was still working and, and it was cool. I think maybe um, after Trump was elected and I saw that everybody sort of lost their fucking mind, um, I began to notice more of it. And But maybe maybe within a year, 2017 or so, you know, you, you, the, the things began where you um, first there was me, too, for one, um, when that when that began and. You know, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but I reached a point where I sort of just stopped talking to a lot of my female colleagues because oh, sure. um, I, for one, I was already tired of being denigrated and just as a as a man. And the funny thing is, the more I leaned into my masculinity, such as there is for an actor who <laughs> does musicals, right? Um, yeah. You know, I, I worked a lot and um, I got way more work that way. But, you know, you sit in these rehearsal rooms and people would just say the most asinine, ridiculous and frankly sexist things like one. Um, I heard this twice, once um, rehearsing a play and once I was doing a guest star on set, some, you know, Fox show, which is canceled. But they were mm -hmm. like, you know, the reason that a lot of conservative women end up voting Republican is that they're afraid of their husbands. Yeah. And um, I, I, I became so filled with just rage because it's it's just a really sexist thing to say um and then you know at meet and greets it was like you know let's go all around the room and and introduce ourselves and give your name and your role in the production and also say your pronouns yeah. and uh, once i began to see that shift um i really really um began to feel like i don't know if i really belong here but my my career is going well so i guess i'll just kind of shut up for a while so it's hard to pinpoint a specific um the like point where it shifted, I think it's sort of gradual over time, because what I was going to ask you was that were you always kind of maybe a default liberal and then you began to notice things change over time? Or was there a specific moment for you where you began to say, hold on, something is really weird here? Well, I'm a Unitarian minister's daughter and I was born liberal, man. I was always <laughs> I was always a liberal and a left leaning liberal. But but I always stood on the foundations of classical liberalism of the Age of Enlightenment era stripe. And I still stand on that rock. And I love the fact that once I began questioning and began um, uh, really doing deep dives into things like Michael Brown, um, uh, things like... Uh, what do we do about the lack of due process when Al Franken is 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 you know tried and convicted? Uh, they gave him a fair trial and then they hung him uh, for a, for a photograph, and we lose then a good classical liberal as a, as a consequence. He should have stood his ground. Um, yeah, well, that, I, with the Al Franken thing. Sorry to cut in, but I remember that. Yeah. that I was like, why? I, you know, it was a dumb prank that he pulled. 
and it was stupid and he thought it was funny for whatever reason and for me that should you know maybe apologize it was it was dumb i was being you know like it's a dumb guy joke and that could have been the end of it but 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 he but he he got canceled for that it was very strange but dennis all a great favor by standing his ground if the if the woman on the plane had been awake she either would have laughed at it or she would have batted his hands away and said, get back off, chump. You know, that would have been that. By the way, while while we're on the topic of, of male actors, as you know, I'm a dialect coach. I am constantly coaching Australian actors to to on their general American accents. Why? Because masculine. They're more masculine. I, I, I asked my uh, my former manager the same question. I said, why are we getting all these British and Australian actors? And she, yeah. without even missing a beat, she said, exactly. they're more masculine. That's exactly you know? right. Yeah. And so what happens, you know, you talked about starting to lose kind of your ability to speak your truth, which of course is the death of story. Mm-hmm. We're here to do a job. We were We were given, like Prometheus, we were given fire, my friend, you and me. We were given fire. And our job is to bring that light into the world. My motto is uh, uh, tell a story, save the world. Mm. And so, uh, you know, as we began to hide our own light under a bushel for fear of being disliked, for fear of being called names, because we hadn't been used to, we weren't used to being called names then. Um, I advise people now, get yourself called a few names, get yourself called transphobe <laughs> a few times. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, it's the best vaccine you could ever want to, uh, uh, you know, go go through is just get inoculated against all that stuff. Um, um, you know, once we, uh, you know, fear of losing our jobs, which of course is is economic, very, very serious economic terrorism. And this is the kind of terrorism that we see in authoritarian countries that we look down upon and that we fear and we should fear because you lose your roof. Suddenly things get very, very, very serious. And the fact that people are threatened with with losing their roof makes the people who are doing it terrorists. Mm -hmm. And so. um, So for me, you talked about this diet, the wool liberal. Yeah, I came to this as a the classic textbook version of someone who was feel you know feel good liberal and a, and a helper girl and all of those things and suddenly it's like wait what what no that can't be right we're we're losing we're losing our freedom to speak our freedom to think and you're asking me to enable delusions and i can't do that so eventually i was fired from both companies i was fired from that is to say, I was no longer hired by every other uh, theater in town, which is one reason the accents in this town have gone sadly downhill. <laughs> uh, but um, but out of that, when I was fired, I went to both theater companies, to the artistic directors and to the boards. And I said, here's, here's why you're not hiring me anymore. I was an independent contractor. So here's why you're not bringing me on anymore. This, 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 and this. Um, Artist Repertory Theater, which uh, is in a very sad state these days for a number of different reasons, but mm-hmm. season programming being chief among them. Um, uh, I was a resident artist at that company. And like like Martin Luther, you know, nailing his, his 99 theses to the door of the church, I 
presented a 30 page document detailing how the company was failing, why it was failing and what was going to be the company's future, which is now being made manifest. I'm sure they like that. No. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh so very much. Um, and then with the artistic director of Portland Center Stage, I had an email exchange where I said, you know, this is what you're doing and this is why you're doing it. And and you'll come to regret this because Clifton, as you know, regardless of where we are in the mad progress of all of this, regardless of whether we find ourselves in the middle or perhaps toward the end, toward it getting better or getting worse, we can't know. We can't get that thousand foot view. Um, Everything suffers as a consequence of, of, of storytelling being shackled. Everything suffers. Um, it has a ripple effect out into the culture that, um, that I think we're only beginning to understand. Now, I definitely want to get into that, but I also am curious about uh, what are some of the things that you told these theaters? Um... Sure, absolutely. Um, I talked to them about... Uh, uh, Hiring for the sake of diversity as opposed to hiring the best actor, hiring the best storyteller. I told him that uh, sermonizing from the stage is never going to work. It's not going to work as a good story, and it's certainly not going to work. And I'm a pragmatist, uh, Clifton. It's one of the reasons I became a voice actor. I, I wanted to be presuming I was able to be successful, and thankfully I was. Um, I wanted to be financially secure. You know, I didn't want to be a will-o'-the-wisp and travel the country doing theater. I, I wanted a different kind of life for myself. I am a pragmatist. And I said, you're going to alienate your donors. You're going to alienate your patrons. This is going to impact your, your company's bottom line. As you and I both know, ticket sales never support a company. You need endowments. You need massive sponsorships. I said, you're... Um, uh, uh, you're going to see a massive drop in financial support for your theater. Mm. That's already occurring in this in this town. And I have the receipts. Donors and patrons, I know this town is small enough that the big time donors, everybody knows all of them. Mm -hmm. And um, and uh, they are no longer supporting or attending these theaters. And the exact same thing is happening at Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Oh wow! Down at the, down at the bottom end of the, st the state, and you know what a what a what a jewel in the crown Ashland was. Yeah, it's a real shame. I've always wanted to work in, in a repertory company, but you know, I, and it, the, the contracts were a bit too long for my for my tastes. But just the, the prestige of that company, mm. um, you know, it, it was probably second to none. One of the most well known theater companies in the in the uh, in the country, probably. That's There's no question about it. If you go online right now, though. And you look at their season or Portland Center Stages season or artists rep, such as it is, and every, 75, 85% of the plays are issue plays hmm. at a time when we're coming out of a pandemic and what we need is comfort and we need, right. we, need we need nourishment, yes. we need hope, right? All of that. And you're going to give us scolding and doom and gloom. Um, and then you compare it to the season of a company like Utah Shakes and Utah Shakes has very smartly, uh, designed a season. That's a beautiful mix of the classics, both sort of Elizabethan era and then coming forward with some modern pieces, 
um, uh, one or two of which may be a little edgy. Yay, go, go, go Utah. San Franciscans are going to fly right over Ashland and they're going to land in Salt Lake, hmm. go right to Utah Shakes. Theaters that want to survive today, can, if they smartly curated their seasons, they would be picking up audiences from every other theater in town, I guarantee it. And you know, I, I didn't want to be a Cassandra, but I could go back and reread those emails today or my Martin Luther thesis and see that my predictions were correct. And you and I both see theaters going under one after the other after the other. Well, you know, it's it's a great segue to uh, discuss a, a topic that we we um, touched on before we began recording because you know I reached a point and and sort of goes back to your uh, question about when I began to notice things. But you know, there there came a point in New York where I just became really disinterested in going to a lot of shows, um, even if I had friends in them, um, sure. because I got the sense that they weren't making shows for me, they were making shows for themselves. And I've gotten pushback when I when I mentioned that, you know, people say everyone makes shows for themselves. And I suppose that's true. I mean, there was a an interview um, that August Wilson gave where he said, you know, I make shows selfishly for myself. But the thing is that August Wilson, um, he gave so much of himself. He would talk about how he was exhausted after writing um, a lot of his plays and how his characters spoke to him. And so he was he was channeling something and then and then giving us what it was. And he had someone like Lloyd Richards to help him shape his plays into into the sort of um, you know momentous things that they are. Um, so I, I, I hear that at the same time, it, it, it's not useful to make shows for yourself when the, the selves that you're making the shows for are uh, slaves to this really nihilistic and cynical sort of postmodernist deconstructionist outlook. And over time, I began to say, you know, it's not only that I don't want to go see the shows because I felt like they they were just really making things to appeal that, that seemed cool to like a bunch of affluent, mostly white liberals. And I, I call them bourgeois minorities um, very derisively. Um, but then I would get uh, these scripts as well um, that I just I had no desire to audition for. You know, I mean, I've wanted to play Billy Bigelow for years. I wanted to do, I wanted to do uh, Curly in Oklahoma for years. And then when they did Oklahoma, first of all, it was this weird sort of, again, deconstructed you know, nonsense that all the critics loved, by the way. And then, you know, they, when they brought me into audition, which is ironic, um, or they wanted me to audition for like the comic relief in that show. And I'm like, I'm a, I'm six, three, like almost 200 pounds strapping guy with a big baritone voice. You want me to play this fucking comic role? There's, there's a million people in New York who are funny, who can do that. Yeah. And I yeah. want to play a, again, it goes back to, I want to play a man. And I, and I, and there was a point around 2018 where, you know, that I had a, an amazing run and then everything kind of stopped. And I have a sense that one of the reasons is because I'm not gay, I'm not trans. And also I just had no interest in doing these plays that I was going to be, like you were saying, a mouthpiece. There was a, I was talking to Douglas Murray about this. There's a, a British theater critic named Lloyd Evans. And what he said stuck with me. He said, Lloyd said that, um, you know, the theater, that they try, they're trying to make the theater into a think tank. That's not yeah. what it is. No. And so that, that's my long-winded way of, of asking you about um, the, the broader state of theater, because do you, you know, it, it just, for me, I just have no, I have no desire. And I see these people complaining about how, you know, how come we're not getting people in, in, in theaters? How can we get more audience members? How can we get a more diverse audience? And my answer is, well, why don't you make shows that they fucking want to watch? How about that? 
Yeah, if you if you wouldn't mind, if you wouldn't mind, that's exactly <laughs> right. So let's let's touch on uh, on August Wilson first, mm. and and the reason that I think his plays work, whereas these other pageant pieces don't. Mm-hmm. Um, just for, just for really quickly, just uh, you know, August Wilson for those who don't know, probably one of the most revered American playwrights. Uh, he was a black man. Um, he wrote what's called the the Century Cycle, where he he took a play. Um, he covered the entire 20th century with this cycle of plays. They're, they're, some of them are loosely connected, most of them are not. They're kind of they're self-contained. But he set a play in each decade of the 1900s, and um, they 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 run the gamut from you know you have uh, Gem of the Ocean, which I think is one of his er- set in the early one of the earliest set plays, right. where you have like former slaves who are who are uh, among the. Um, who are among the cast. And then there's uh, King Hedley II, for instance, uh, which is where the first place I saw Di- uh, Viola Davis uh, uh, on stage. Um, that's set in the 80s. His last play was called Radio Golf, which is set um, you know, in the late, um, late 90s, sort of early 2000s, sort of like an Obama figure at the center of the play. Um, but it's, he, he's an extraordinary writer who I think, well, I'm not going to steal your thunder, but, but oh, his plays, his, I think his plays worked because he was writing about, even though his plays were all black people, except for like one character who's like, who recurs in each play, the white guy. Um, <laughs> but, but his plays were about normal people in extraordinary circumstances who were making extraordinary choices and, and that their relationships, the conflicts that you saw un- unfold. Um, you know, I, I love, I mean, the language for me was very Shakespearean in terms of its size, but the, it, this play sort of unfolded in, in a sort of Shakovian um, way, you know, way as well, mm-hmm. sort of really naturalistic mm-hmm. and, you know, very philosophical. Um, he's a very, very dynamic playwright and his plays resonate with with everyone. But uh, that's my sort of soapbox. So please, Mary, you're the guest. Go ahead for it. Go I for think, it. Uh, I think uh, I, as far as I'm concerned, we are uh, we are co-creating this podcast together, my friend. It's my <laughs> great pleasure to do so. Likewise. Uh, uh, I think I also need to come to uh, to where you are, and I will direct you in in the August Wilson play of your choice. We'll we'll get that done. Um, you really made my point for me with your last set of comments. When August Wilson said, "I write for myself," and as I thought that through, all I did was separate the word "my" from the word "self," and I capitalized "self." I write for my self. And so that great self, you know, we talked about uh, Whitman earlier. I am large. I contain multitudes. That self, when Chekhov wrote, when Shakespeare wrote, when uh, Aeschylus wrote, when we had these, these, these great writers, uh, they are, they are writing in, in, you know, Joseph Campbell would approve, Jung would approve. These guys were dialed into all of these, this largeness that they, that, that each of these writers then got to capture with the tip of a pen, put on paper only to have it then explode out again when it's on stage and it becomes eternal. It becomes enduring. Uh, and it uh, uh, stands up in front of audiences for, for all time these these ambulatory truths and that's why august wilson works the plays that we're talking about today have nothing to do with the truth and they have mm-hmm. everything to do with politics they have to do with with the people who are creating these pieces in my estimation we talk about them making these plays for themselves 
that has to do with, I think, them feeling very small and trying to find some purposefulness. But you can't find purposefulness by being small and by grasping. You can only find it by being large and letting in the great, great uh, eternal and unending energy streams that we then bring to life as art. Uh, I hope that makes sense. I'm, I'm, well, you know, I, I wrote down um, Stella Adler, who, for those who don't know, uh, renowned acting teacher. Some you probably have heard of some of her students, Mark Ruffalo, Warren Beatty. Uh, his most famous, her most famous student was Marlon Brando, and she writes about size. As mm. actors, we we need size. When you step up onto that stage, you're stepping into a tradition that goes back for thousands of years, and you 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 are a conduit and a vessel for you know all the billions and billions of human beings who have lived before you and who will come after you. So there there is a weight there, and the size comes through the size of the voice. You know, you, yeah. you're using your, your your resonance and your sound waves, your vibrations. You're literally using, um, you know, you're moving the air to touch people. It's the size of your emotional capacity, your your ability to tap into these big big um, emotions. Your it's your temperament, your intellect, your 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 palate in terms of your your range of expression, how you move your body. There's all these kinds of things, mm -hmm. um, and and you can see, you know, there there are some actors where they just step on stage, and they might be. They might be small, they might be, you know, they might be five foot five, they might be six foot five. Mm -hmm. um, but you just, they're so compelling and they just, they take up, they take up space and you can't not watch them. And they're, they're just so epic. Um, yes. I, I mentioned Viola Davis, you know, King Hedley II, that they were doing tryouts at Kennedy Center in D.C. Um, for, for uh, you know, for Broadway. And there's this monologue in, in this play. It's about two pages long. Uh, August Wilson loved to write these long ass monologues. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but she talks about how she, the reason that she didn't, that, that she basically aborted her child, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And Viola Davis is this tall, dark skinned, just statuesque black woman with this big voice and this deep well of emotions. She's a Juilliard trained actress, by the way. And mm -hmm. she just sat, and I was 17. I didn't know shit about shit. But for that two for that two and a half minutes she was up there, I I couldn't watch anything else. I was so I was so I mean I I get goosebumps now just talking about what she did. She has she is epic. She's like yes. she's like she's like she reminds she's like James Earl Jones to me just in terms of her sheer size. That's what we're talking about right there. This You're epicness. Epic. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And we would watch these people in their silence just as much as we would watch right. them in their sounding. Right. Uh, as you know, sound is energy made audible. Um, we've had the same energy whipping around the world like like firestorms since 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 the Big Bang. And for those of us who can hop on that energy and ride it, uh, uh, we then bring that, there's that Prometheus reference again, we then bring that conflagration and that light, that illumination to the world. You cannot get there being small. Yeah. Um, two things. I coached the first all-Black Oklahoma uh, mm. here in the United States at uh, at uh, Portland Center Stage. It was um, Rodney Hicks on that, before right? the deluge with Rodney. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and uh, brought by uh, through the genius of Chris Coleman, and um, I was the first dialect coach in the country who was speaking deeply and at length about what was at that time African American vernacular, as you know, vernacular English, A A V E, mm 
Mm. Uh, which, as we now know, is AAE, African American English, which is largely a parallel to SAE, Southern American English, with some distinctions. Beautiful, beautiful uh, language. Uh, mm -hmm. John Porter would celebrate it as a as a complete language, and he would right. have some marvelous things to say about it. And I've been fortunate enough to to chat with him about that on a few occasions. Um, my cast, when we, on that very first day, I said, here's what we're going to do. Um, actors sitting around the table and I, I had prepared my materials and so forth. And they were sitting there, many of them sitting there quietly weeping. They said, you mean you don't want us to have, you know, kind of a standard Oklahoman accent which is going to be those hard r's it's going to you're going to have this kind of sound um and i said no no we that's don't that's not how we talk <laughs> yeah we want you to bring that up from the south and we're going to set it free right here in oklahoma and um it was as as you know when in the when, when a rehearsal room becomes holy in that moment when a rehearsal room becomes holy, there is no other place in the world. You are there trapped in amber and talk about goosebumps. I get goosebumps uh, at that at that recognition. Um, at this point in time, it was it, it was a triumph. The show was a triumph. Um, uh, I am no longer allowed to coach AAE. I was the first coach in the country who coached it. I was the first coach that said, no, 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 no. This is a language that here's the glorious past of this language. This is what's so important about the language. Here's all the documents I've prepared to instruct it. I can't, I can't touch it anymore. That's so ridiculous. It reminds me, I was doing piano lesson at Hartford stage and uh, mm -hmm. we had this, yeah. um, this voice coach, which I, you know, it was not a good production. I want another crack at that role. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, we had this Maybe voice that's coach. What we'll do. A, you know, boy, Willie, um, <laughs> we, but we had this voice coach who came in. He was, you know, Yale guy and he was playing. I, I'm telling this story because it, it goes, it, it cuts to the heart of the ignorance of the kind of people that we're talking about who now infest the theater and, um, and the entertainment industry at large. Uh, um, and, you know, we're, we're, and I got my best acting notes from him, as a matter of fact, mm. in terms of specificity and, you know, but he, he, you know, he's playing um, just recordings of people talking, um, mm -hmm. of black people talking um, mm -hmm. in, in, in the region and the dialect that we were looking for. Yeah. And so you have these kind of weird sounds like, you know, when they said work, they said, wake, you know, Boy, you know, absolutely. Right. Irish. So leftover from the Irish. Right. And, and I had heard that before. Right. And I said, so I recognize that as like, yes, that's accurate to me that that sounds about right. Mm -hmm. And so when I brought this into rehearsal, like the, you know, the next day, the director who I will not name, but I made sure that she, she didn't work <laughs> a couple of jobs. People Good. reached out to me. I was like, Good. don't hire this bitch. But uh, <laughs> she, she, she's, she's given us notes and she goes, yeah, like, and you know, black woman, by the way. Mm -hmm. And she was saying, um, I don't know that like that, that sound like the, you said, you said, uh, uh wake, like it, it sounds, it sounds white to me. And in her mind, she's hearing like some new joysy accent yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And That's I'm, right. and I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, literally, we have recordings of black people saying this. I've, I've heard in my life, 
black people saying this. If you've yes. ever been down south, you hear black people speaking like this. How do you That's not right. know this? But in her mind, there is this there's this idea of what white people sound like and what black people sound like. There's no sort of specificity in terms of region. I mean, I'm down here in Atlanta right now. I hear the music you're talking about. You know, it's all over the Great place. Up. And Great and up. And I recognize it and I appreciate it. You know what I mean? Um, but it, yeah. it, it just, you know, when she was so quote unquote woke that she couldn't, she, she couldn't understand that. And she, and she really, she had, I, I, I likened it, you know, she had a brilliant cast of like, you know, I think how many, 12 people in that character in that, in that play. And it's like, you know, no, there's not that many, but it was like, it was like showing up every day and having her just set the cast on fire, just burning to the ground, all the potential that she had. It was, it could have been a fantastic production, but her and her ignorance and her blindness completely, you know, just, just, just ruined it. It ruined it. You know, if you go, if you go, uh, my condolences, by the way. <laughs> Thank uh, you. It was very, it was, I was, I had a really hard time with that one. Well, of course. I mean, why would you, you you're watching your baby die right in front of you. Mm. Uh, if you go, I have coached the Yat dialect many, many times at this point, um, which for our listeners is the, is the accent of the ninth ward of New Orleans, a very specific uh, uh, area in, in New Orleans. And yat comes from the saying, where yat, where yat, or, or yeah, where yat. Hmm. And, uh, and that toyd lives on down there. Oh, he's staying out on Toy Street. You're going to see him down on Toy Street, y'all. Right? And so you get this magnificent sound, which must be preserved and protected and defended and elevated. And instead, it's oppressed by racists, fundamentally, at the end hmm. of the day. You know? Uh, my swan song, my directing swan song here in Portland was when I directed a show called God of Vengeance, which was the show at the heart of the play Indecent, which swept the country a couple of seasons ago. Right, right. And in Indecent, as you recall, a traveling troupe of players is performing God of Vengeance, which is a real play written by a guy named Sholem Ash in 1907. Uh, a Russian Jew uh, wrote the play, and this is the play that the story Indecent is about. Well, I had to read God of Vengeance in order to coach Indecent, which I did for uh, Denver Center, and um, I fell in love with it. And so I uh, came back here and I got my patrons on board and I began working on uh, producing and directing the play. Well, because I had some extra money for this glorious piece, I hired a dramaturg, a stage manager, um, an, assi uh, an assistant director, all the things I never have as a, as a you know, uh, as, as a, in film television, I do all right. In theater, I'm a poor theater mouse like everybody else, almost everybody else. And so um, I get it all together. I audition my actors. I ask, I offer uh, the uh, role to an actor and she writes me back and she says, before I accept the role, I need, uh, I, I have some concerns um, that you're casting non-Jews in these Jewish roles. You're casting non-Jews. And she said, I'm also concerned at the lack of brown people at the producer's table. Hmm. And talk about having receipts. I have all those emails still. And she went on and uh, I wrote her back and I said, well, based on your questions, the offer of work is rescinded because I don't have bigots on my stage. Hmm. And I never, ever, ever have anybody leaning over my shoulder 
and telling me where to chip away the marble as I work on my David mm. ever. So it blew up my beautiful <laughs> dramaturg, stage manager, assistant director, and another actor. They all quit. Uh, every became a firestorm. I, I carried on. I had my rabbi come in as I was always going to do. Obviously I had my Yiddish speaker come in. Uh, uh, the meals that I cooked for the cast were all kosher because that was important to me, not because they were Jewish, but because this is the food they would have eaten, you know, in the shtetl. So, you know, it was one of those things Clifford, where you say to yourself, if I, how am I to tell my stories if, if I have these eyes all around me, damning, if I have to worry on opening night, as I did, if I have to worry on opening night about a disruption when the curtain figuratively goes up, how am I to work as a storyteller safely? And how much further are these limits going to go? We've, we've talked about film television. We probably should touch on that a little bit now. Um, how much more are we going to be asked to give up? Because I'll tell you this, the more that artists agree to it, the more is going to be taken away from us. Never, never explain, never defend, and never, ever apologize. If you're an artist and you want your art to live, if you want to be able to do the job you came to this planet to do, never explain, never defend, and never, ever apologize. We both know that modern audiences don't want to see woke television or woke films. Films are bombing right, left, and center, whether they're superhero films or uh, uh, romantic comedies. We've just seen the, you know, the crash of uh, Bros, I think the film is called. Well, I didn't know if, uh, if uh, Buzz Lightyear was going to be a sore spot for you. I didn't want to Oh, I up. know. Yeah. You know, uh, right. I mean, the challenge with Buzz, right? We had the kiss, the kiss scene around the galaxy and and the response to that. Right. Thank you. Yeah, you know, so th there, there are a few commentators I watched had a, a different perspective on it, which um, it wasn't necessarily the kiss. It was that within the the the, the story, um, it was the denigration of the role of the father. And mm -hmm. I mean, it was also like, you know, well, it's it's not Tim Allen for one. <laughs> so yeah, is, it, right. is, it, is it really the character? And then yeah. it was the idea that, you know, and I, I think I mean, I feel bad because the, you know, the, the lesbian kiss kind of thing. I mean, I think people don't generally they're like they, they, they wouldn't care about it if it didn't seem like it was cynically placed mm -hmm. for for sociopolitical purposes. Mm -hmm. um, but also, I think, I think story wise, too, people made brought up the point that, you know, people in foreign countries, especially that are very family oriented, they don't want to see a story about where, you know, fathers don't matter or that they're not, you know, and that, now I, I didn't see the film. So I don't know. I'm just I'm, I'm just relaying to you what I've heard secondhand from other people say, but that's kind of beside the point. I think that's no, I think that I think that your take is accurate. I think you cover kind of the, the, the you know, the broad spectrum of, of responses to you know the kiss um my goodness gracious um i think the exa exact same thing is true of bros i think that if um you make a romantic comedy well first of all again here's the pragmatist in my in my in my head women bring men to romantic comedies mm -hmm. women want to see 
on screen, a man wooing a woman. They want them to meet cute. They want them to not like each other. Then they want them to have a reunion and then to, to fall in love forever. It is a time-honored formula that speaks to the feminine spirit, to the feminine psyche. And I say this without a shred of embarrassment and without a shred of concern, because it just is what it is, right? Um, so as a romantic comedy, unless you're willing to accept that this is going to be a niche film, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, there's also nothing wrong with making a film that's say about a couple of gay men, um, and hoping it'll go mainstream. That's perfectly fine. The, the intent, the effort, uh, having that as your goal, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And there's everything right with it. But we, but we must expect to be probably disappointed. And when we are disappointed, we ought not to behave badly in the face mm. of it. It doesn't help ticket sales. And if, in fact, we care about that, because we need to make enough money to go make the next film. We have to figure out how to navigate this stuff in such a way that we can carry on doing what it is we wanna do. And if what we wanna do is make mainstream gay films, mainstream trans films, mainstream uh, diverse films, the Bridgertons of the world and so forth, then uh, go with God, my friend, but expect to be disappointed along the way. Let me ask you this. I just watched, um, I'm watching a show now called uh, Shetland. Um, it's a, a British detective piece. Mm -hmm. And it's very, very, very good of the kind of um, broad church ilk. Very dark, very moody, very, very interesting. In it, they travel back to the past and they have a relationship between a man and a woman uh, who are um, uh, lovers. Um, the uh, woman's black and the man is white and it's uh, well past, it's further back, right? So it's going he heading back towards sort of Edwardian. In fact, it may not be Shetland. It's another one of my, my English uh, detective shows. There is no mention made of the fact that this white um, upper-class character is with this black upper-class character um at all and there's certainly no resistance by the other characters in the story to this interracial situation i'm i'm wondering what's being asked of us are we being asked to pretend that history wasn't history that the way things were in the past weren't or are we being asked to what are we being asked to do in order to take in this story, do you yeah, think? That, well, that strikes me as a huge suspension of disbelief. Uh, for me, as a Black person watching that, I mean, I do want to watch the show. It sounds really, really good. Um, I, ba I barely watch any shows nowadays um, yeah. for the reasons we've been we've been discussing. But um, I think as a Black person, I would just be, you know, and, and I, I, I would, it reminds me there was a show, what was it? Come Back Little Sheba, the, uh, mm -hmm. the Broadway revival with uh, Essa Paytha Merkerson um, in one of the lead roles. And, um, you know, she's playing this um, housewife in the 1950s and her husband is white. And I remember we were talking about it um, 
It was at, up at Chautauqua, as a matter of fact. And mm -hmm. uh, we and one of the actors who was in that production uh, was actually in it. So it was kind of funny because we were sitting there talking about it. And then he was like, um, can I talk about it? I was actually in it. And um, I have some opinions. But for me, but my, but my opinion was that, um, you know, it, 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 it struck me as odd that there was this interracial relationship in the 1950s and that nobody really said anything about it. Mm -hmm. And my my position was that you don't have to make the play about that because the play is not about that. Mm -hmm. But I feel as though, you know, it's 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 more difficult for me to suspend my disbelief. Um, and I think you also miss out on opportunities for a little bit more texture, maybe a little bit more conflict, some more shading in the nuances of the relationships there, maybe some more moments that you didn't really expect to be there. So and but I also wonder if the creators of uh, Shetland are maybe in a, between a rock and a hard place, because, you know, if they if they don't make anything about it, uh, make a, make anything of it, then there's people like me who are like, that's kind of weird. Um, and maybe they think they're being progressive by not commenting on it. But mm -hmm. at the same time, it's like if they do decide to go there, then, you know, there's going to be people who are saying, well, it doesn't go far enough. You know, she needs to be, uh, oh. you know, she, there, there has to be some kind of uh, relevance to today or whatever. So, you know, right. to, I guess to answer your question, it's like, you know, it sounds on one hand, I, I guess I'm kind of torn because sure, it's although it's nothing new to see interracial couples. It's just if you're talking about a period piece. Um, it's just a little bit odd that there's no mention or no notice made of it whatsoever. I mean, maybe it'll be brought up in a, a later episode, but uh, I, it, it would strike me as like, I don't know if that is is true. It feels to me like sort of a, a what's the word, like a progressive fantasy um, of, of what that yeah, is. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And and it, you, bring, you bring several things to, to mind. First of all, there is a benefit in, quote, getting used to seeing things. Mm -hmm. um, for example, many, many years ago, it, if we saw somebody in a wheelchair in a show, it would be like, A, there'd be a reason the guy would be in a wheelchair that would come up in the plot. And B, we would, we would really notice that that person was in a wheelchair. These days, you don't, you don't notice it at all. It's just here, here comes the medical examiner and she's in a wheelchair. Um, uh, that is due to, um, uh, not only our unions insisting on and making it uh, financially um, appealing to cast uh, actors with disabilities, P PWDs, people with disabilities, performers, mm -hmm. sorry, performers with disabilities. Um, and that's, that has been a victory, right? Um, taken too far, you know, yes, we can see some of the extremes in, in casting that we're living with today. Uh, we would never have had Daniel Day-Lewis playing his character in my left foot as an example and that would be a true loss a true artistic right. loss um we could never stage elephant man at all um so so there there's extremes there i really love the fact that we we've got this comfort level now let's think about interracial couples or gay folks kissing there is a large segment of the population certainly in the west that's already used to that we're already used to it we get it, right? Uh, and and if you look at the statistics, um, the line between Democrats and Republicans now, as regards, for example, same-sex marriage, the Venn diagram there is there's an incredible overlap. We're just about over it in every single way that we can look at uh, gay marriage, every single uh, political camp. So, how much of this are we already done with? 
And now you're picking up a hammer and, and hitting me with it. I resent that. Um, that said, I do want to acknowledge the, the helpful nature of, of presenting real life scenarios so that, so that we can all kind of look and perceive and move through a world with, with as broad an outlook as possible. But the word you used was cynical. And cynical cynicism is exactly what 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 comes uh, comes into play here. As an example, on the voice acting side, um, if you listen to spots now, the vast majority are voiced by black people. Um, how do I know? You ask. Well, come on, you know, don't be. <laughs> stop it! Stop it! As as Douglas Murray says, oh, just stop it. We all know when it's a black man or a black woman speaking on a commercial. There's a whole bunch of really glorious, glorious reasons to know that. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, uh, well, if I can cut in really quickly, yeah, please. It's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, when, when I when I spoke to Douglas on the podcast, he mentioned this goes back a little bit to what you're talking about uh, with uh, with PWDs and how it can be distracting. It, it actually bleeds into both both the cynicism of it as well, because he, he mentioned um, the the Daniel Craig Macbeth that was on Broadway and he was not he was not taken by it. But we, we both had a, a great laugh over the moment um, of uh uh, Banquo's, I believe it was Banquo's assassination. Mm -hmm. And he was like, yeah, the assassin was in a wheelchair. Oh, dear. and, and Sorry. he said, you know, all, it, well, it was hilarious. He's, he goes, he goes, he goes, well, you know, all he had to do is, you know, is maybe go down a gravelly path you know, <laughs> or, or turn right or something like that. And which was hilarious, you know, because, because, he, but he said, but the cynicism of it, he said, you know, I, he resented the fact and I identify with that and kind of leads into my next point. He, he resented the fact that he was being asked to not really ask, but told to say, don't notice this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's absurd. But if you talk about it, if you notice it, if you have a problem with it, then you are a bad person. That's pretty much what it is. Mm -hmm. um, we're doing a great thing for procasting this person. But the problem with that is that, you know, it's, it's Macbeth. It's a play with war. It's, it's people are violent and they're soldiers. Um, people are, people are getting killed. And so if I see somebody who's just, you know, I, I want to see a play where you know, it's people getting stabbed and all kind. Not like, and he said, you know, the, the, they they gave the character a gun, which is like, you know, the play wasn't written with guns in mind for one. So there, you know, I did a production where they where we had guns. It doesn't work, sure. um, but it leads into the second point uh, a little bit, which is that the cynicism uh, aspect and I, a recurring theme that I, that I see coming up. You mentioned all these black voices. Um, you know, I I almost wish we could go back to a time where you know that they mentioned the uh, the term the black tax where you have to be this much better than everybody else in order to just to get you know half the opportunities mm -hmm. um now that's not fair however under that system we were introduced to actors like james earl jones and sydney poitier and sammy mm -hmm. davis jr and denzel washington and all these other wonderful spectacular people and um and now there's so many um that are, that are all over the place and People are beginning to say, A, I notice it. I know I'm being told to notice it. Mm -hmm. And I know that they're not there because of their appeal and their ability. Sorry, like they're just not. And um, my, my fear, and I think this is already beginning to happen, and, I, and again, I've had this reflected back to me, um, is that uh, when they see a black face in a, in a show, they just immediately kind of go, yeah, whatever. Um, I mean, I had a friend, as a matter of fact, we did a, a revival of Carmen Jones uh, off uh, off Broadway um, a few years ago. And I, I was telling my friend um, about it, who's pretty, pretty, pretty staunchly right wing. 
And um, although just, you know, but she also loves the arts and, you know, I take her to come see shows and stuff like that. And uh, I told her about Carmen Jones, which for people who don't know, um, it's in, so it's a, it's an adaptation of the of the George uh, Bizet uh, opera Carmen, which itself is based on the the Prosper uh, Mary May uh, book Carmen, which everyone should read. It's a, an amazing, amazing book. Mm. But uh, what uh, Oscar Hammerstein did, one of the um, you know most revered composers in the in the uh, musical theater, he uh, he took the story of Carmen and he adapted it. He set it in 1940, 1940s in and with an all black cast, and he adapted it. And um, he made some good choices, others not so much. Um, but uh, the point is that once I told my friend this, her her reflex was like, "Oh, another one," and I'm like, "No, this show this show's been around for like for since 1940. Like yeah. this was like they they literally were just adapting the story for you know and the music for a different you know." for a different uh, sort of milieu, I guess. And so what's happening now that that's the broader way of saying that I think people now are just being turned off. And so it's like, what's what's the point now? If I were to show up on screen with all or on stage with all of my abilities, are people going to write me off now? It's like, do I have do I do I actually have to be that much better now? Be, ironically, because of um, this sort of yeah. these, in, the, the intention of these progressives to put me out there. It's just, you know, and, and um, I don't think, I, you know, I'm, I'm working on this theory that, uh, you know, all this wokeness now is actually hurting minority actors. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that's a worthwhile theory. Uh, it's, it's, it's hurting in a lot of different ways. If you hear the most liberal body that you're going to meet in general in the United States are artists and certainly performers are, are right up there. We know what happens to conservative performers. I'm certainly not a conservative performer. I'm a classical liberal as we have heretofore established. Uh, but if you look at the Tim Allens or the uh, John Voights or some of the others, um, Patricia Heaton, um, if you look at the conservative actors, they have practically got to whisper their positions or they will be, you know, damned from the get go. Even Denzel is fairly conservative. He, he's he's obviously to me conservative. The things that he says, he doesn't he doesn't broadcast it. But mm -hmm. to me, he is very, very clearly a conservative yeah. or more yeah. conservative leaning, I should say. Yeah, agreed completely. Yeah. So uh, um, to hear as I as I did, I was out um, back east working on a film last year and I met up with some pals and we were sitting around a bar, men and women, actors, uh, stage screen voice acting and um, uh, all of them white, one of them Jewish. If we're doing identities, we might as well, if we're playing <laughs> identity cards, let's lay them out. To hear these good people feel anger at, at the level of discrimination that they're facing these days is, 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 it hurts my heart and it hurts all of their hearts too. They feel horrible about the anger they feel about the degree to which doors have been closed to them and they have their 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 histories their their caliber their uh, mouths to feed the mortgage to pay just as much as anybody else does and it's only the color of their skin that's preventing them from being considered in these various job applications which is what our auditions are auditions yeah how is that not the most brutal form of racism um, that anyone on this planet has has experienced. Merely the color of the skin or your sex, which I think is a hidden, a terrible hidden uh, 
secret, your sex or your sexuality, uh, um, that, that no one is going to say out loud because they don't want to get sued. Hmm. But it's nevertheless there. Well, we, we, we spoke briefly before about, uh, you know, it's a very, it's a very, very, I mean, I'm going on the, the sex aspect. It's a very, very explicitly anti-male industry right now. Um, you know, we mentioned before about, you know, they're, they're, they're importing all of these Australians because they, you know, they actually are masculine. Um, you know, I've been in so many rehearsal rooms. I mean, I, I can, I think of one story in particular where I was working on this play, um, with, you know, great director, very uh, established, uh, woman, um, staunchly feminist. And it was a new play. Um, we were working with a, a, the writer who was also pretty, pretty staunchly feminist and, the atmosphere in the room was so toxic whenever I just asked a question. And, and later on, I came to just talk to the writer of this, uh, of this play. Mm -hmm. And they just, they, and she just told me that they, you know, whenever I, I asked something, I mean, we're working on a new show. We're trying to figure out what works and what doesn't, but they just thought that I was just being a man and, um, and trying to, uh, you know, undermine her authority. And, and mm -hmm. I'm like, no, I have to, I have to do the fucking play. I want to know yeah. what I'm doing when the audience comes and sees it, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, but it's, but it's yeah. all kinds of stuff like that. And everything is sexist. Everything is, you know, and going back to Carmen Jones, actually, uh, you know, I remember at one point, and one of the things that excited me about working on the project was I, I read the original novel and the intermixture of sex and violence in that, in that story was mm -hmm. so exciting to me mm -hmm. and so interesting. And I said, yeah, we got to do this, um, you know, problems with the material aside. Um, and I remember at one point, you know, we talked about, you know, it was like 19 mid, the mid forties. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, well, what if um, maybe this is the first time a lot of these men and women are working together in the same place. I mean, it's sort of like a, a, a Petersonian point, if you, if you, if you um, want to say that, I mean, Jordan Peterson has talked about this in, in different interviews. Like maybe we, we haven't quite figured out um, the, how to work alongside each other as men and women, or, or, or we're still negotiating whatever that relationship is. Yeah. And so I pretty much was like, and I, and my perspective was just in, in a discussion in a rehearsal discussion saying, is there any kind of friction is there any more texture that we can find mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. terms of like, maybe this is the first time that we, that we don't often share space together. So we're, so we're navigating that. And yeah. I got shut down by being like black women have been in the labor force since that. I'm like, I'm not making a point about women or black women. You dumb bitch. Yeah. I'm talking about, I'm talking about building the show. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking right. about, you know, trying to find like put life on the stage. That's what I'm talking Where, about. Where's the handholds, man? Where are and the handholds? Right. And, and at that know, point, I just, I just, shut, I, was, I was like, you know what? There's no point in me saying anything. It's just going to be, it's going to be what it is. So I'm just going to shut up. And it's completely killed any kind of joy I had. And meanwhile, right, I was working on, they were going to do a Broadway revival of uh, The Secret Garden. Mm -hmm. And when I was in that room, you know, and that's, I that's, remember a, that's you a, doing that show. You did that. You, yeah. Right. Oh my God. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, oh, I loved it so much. Yeah, we cried every day in that show. It was, it, you know, there's so it's much different. in that material. Those two and women, man, the Simon sisters. They, yeah. Yeah. Lucy just, you know, she just, you know, amazing, amazing composer. And that, that show, I felt so much more a part of the process and everything that we, that we spoke about, uh, you know, me and Warren Carlisle and, and the other actors, we were like, okay, what, what is this about? And, you know, we do little exercises to try to get, you know, to the heart of the scenes, you know, in this, in the small time that we had. And it was such a, it was such a wonderfully inclusive process, but then I get to this other thing and I was like, well, I can't say anything because, um, they're going to get pissed off if I say, <laughs> 
<laughs> anything that yeah. they even smacks of like, you know, oh, women, da, 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 da. I'm like, fuck it. Uh -oh. you know, fuck a man it. with an idea, a man with an opinion, be afraid, right. be very afraid. A man existing. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Men's lives matter. Clifton's life matters. Uh, the, um, what you've talked about, first of all, Secret Garden, just to touch on that, I think that what, some of the brilliance of Secret Garden is the fact that it is absolutely Campbellian or Jungian. It's it stands up to that measure of scrutiny, and and the line. There's so many lines in it that I really, 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 really love. Um, but I do love, you know, uh, at the very end where they say there's there's room for Mary. You know, surely there's room for one more. You know, and I just. Mm -hmm. It's this whole notion of home, you know, and there's so these big, big metaphysical images, the storm and the and the you know, the the unquiet wind, and there's just everything about it that's that's just a, and the notion of paradise, paradise lost is, and his songs are they're all they're all magnificent. And if you hadn't been able to explore as you did, uh you, you know, you know, half of the discoveries would have been undiscovered. And the remainder of the discoveries would have had a shadow cast over them. Hmm. And this is where we end up in rehearsal rooms where exploration is no longer allowed. What does it say about a movement? Because this is a the, the woke movement, critical theory, which is, as we know, our Trojan horse for critical race theory, for uh, trans activism, uh, certainly for fat studies, um, for 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 any one of a number of aspects that seem disparate, but there is a unifying theory that that binds them all together. And 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 uh, James Lindsay, of course, would have a lot to say about that. Certainly, we could apply Marxism to it, which then, of course, uh, very nicely brings in Black Lives Matter and mm -hmm. and, um, and a host of other things. Um, the overarching theme is no we will tell you what truth is and if in fact truth is elusive if it's eternal yet elusive and if we are born seeking it if we are born with a hunger to seek it as we are all of us every mother's son of us is and if within that search lies transcendence of one form or another what is being done to us as as storytellers, as evangelists for that? Because everybody on the planet, from the littlest kid, you know, pretending with a leaf and a stick, the journey begins in childhood from the moment you pick up a rock and you talk about what that rock, well, this is, this is gold, you know, and then you're off to the races from there. Um, so, so all of us are storytellers, but folks like you and me who got lucky and who were born maybe with a brighter light in that field, I can't do math, I can't do plumbing, so thank God I can do something. Um, uh, we are meant to set the pace, like, a, like, like the horse that sets the pace of the races. We are pace setters. And our job is at least in part to help everyone else tell their story to embark on their journey, to achieve their own transcendence. And from that comes mm. civic and cultural transcendence in a both pragmatic and mm, elevated manner, right? 
Well, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought that up because it, you, you articulated a lot of the things. We, one of the things that I've been struggling with, and uh, you know, we can close on this topic, and I feel like you have a lot of wonderful things to say about it, is I'm, I'm trying to figure out, well, what is the point now? What is the point of what we do? Mm. One of my frustrations right now, we talk about the culture war, and yet we don't talk about a, a, a crucial element of the culture, which is the art that this culture is producing right now. And, uh, you know, I've, I know I'm really late to the game. You know, I, I started listening to um, um, the audio version of like Ayn Rand's The Romantic Manifesto when she writes about, um, you know, the, the purpose of art, the social function of art, you know, it doesn't have like a, a pragmatic or practical purpose, but it does serve a purpose. It does serve a function. And, um, and I'm trying to grapple with, um, and I think part of it in the last couple of years, um, I've been on a more, what I would call a spiritual journey, like in, in a, you know, perhaps in an increasingly secular society, you know, is it the role of artists then to bring the transcendence that, and that, that you were talking about? If people don't believe in God, then perhaps they can believe in, in art. And, um, you know, you, you mentioned wanting to talk about this and, uh, you know, the, the importance of storytelling and then what happens to us as people, what happens to our culture and our society if our storytellers are not up to par and if our storytellers are again um, possessed by this nihilistic cynical sort of deconstructionist um, um, ideology like what 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 would the consequences of that be because i'm trying to suss this out um, for myself i think you ask a really interesting question if you know what happens when the stories get small and mean and they dare you to notice that 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 uh, Banquo's assassin is in a wheelchair. What happens when the stories get small? What happens when the stories get small is we get small. Our mm. culture gets small. You talked about the art that our culture produces. We could also talk about the culture that our art produces. It right. really is a two-way street. But I think the the the, the question that. Uh, around all of that, uh, one of the kernels of the many kernels that you've just brought up is what's what's our role? What's your role? Your personal role now moving forward? Um, and I, God knows, I think about it myself, and I know that many of the other people that we admire are forced to consider this very same question: the Douglas Murrays, the Andrew Doyles, the Peter Bogosians, the Helen Pluck Roses our beautiful um, uh, Jody Shaw, you know, all these marvelous individuals who have had to look themselves in the mirror and say, do I heed the call? Do I heed the call right now? And do I step up and speak my truth in order to keep that larger story alive to the best of my ability? Or do I, um, or do I shrink as you had to do in that, in that rehearsal hall. And you and I both know, just to touch on this very, very briefly, that a rehearsal hall, when actors explore, when actors and staff explore together, it is one of the most sacred, um, mystic um, exercises, adventures, journeys that one can enter into because it is in, in actual fact, in every way that we can say, uh, open-ended endless it is galaxy sized and we travel to places and we bring back you know plutonium from venus and we bring back silver from mars and then we make a play out of it but when we are forced to to shut down and to close ourselves off from the 
from capital T truth and become uh, merely um, slaves, lapdogs to the approved message, the state message, mm. then, okay, so then we know what happens to those stories. That's fine. That's all well and good. But let's get back to those of us who still say, my God, you know, I have this hunger. I have this urgency. Would I like to direct again in Portland after my swan, my swan song, you know, after my God of vengeance swan song? Well, yes, I've, I've experienced a death, a death of my art. You've experienced the death of, of your art. Not, not forever, but I'm saying these little, le petit mort, right? These little deaths, right? And they're, they're, they're real and they're painful. And we are forced to ask, our, ask ourselves every day, am I willing to get up again today, speak truth to power, risk losing even more, and proceed with the faith that, that on this narrow path lies a larger paradise on the other side of the dark woods? Is there a larger paradise, not just for me, but for all of us on the far side of these dark woods? Now, I believe there is. I do. And I can see other fellows through the woods. And I often give myself this, this, this vision. I can see other fellows with their lamps held high, little Prometheuses, way off in the distance. And I see them walking in the same direction. And I know that if I fall, someone will help me get up. Hmm. And I know that not all of us will make it there. But I know equally that this is the job at hand. And that within that truth, for all that is lost, there's a larger gain. And that within that gain lies reason enough to get up every day and carry on telling our stories despite everything. So then my last question for you is, what is our role now? What should, what should artists be doing? Um, and when I say artists, I, I guess I, what I really mean is artists who are aware and awake to what we're doing, because the, the positive thing um, is that slowly but surely, I think things are getting so bad, frankly, that uh, I do, you know, maybe you've had this experience as well, but people are reaching out to me, they're finding me. Um, people are really, some really high caliber people um, are very fed up with this kind of thing. And, um, but it's another question that I, that I struggle with is, you know, what, what is it that we are to do? I mean, what, what yeah. would you advise um, the, what, what, what are artists role right now in the, in the current society that we have in your opinion? Well, in my opinion, we need a mighty, mighty army. And so what we as artists have to do, those of us who are already beautifully, wonderfully inoculated, we've had a couple of names called at us and we have discovered that, well, what do you know? The world didn't come to an end and our sight is clearer. That beautiful word, clairvoyant, to see clearly. Mm. Our sight has become clear and focused. Our purpose has become clear and focused. So our job right now is to stand tall, be visible, to set an example for those who are just waking up, like you said, to realize that little by little they can stand up and, and get a couple of names called at them and survive and grow the army. That's what we have to do. Um, yes, within that, we can create our own projects and satisfy some of those urges. There's no question about it. 
But at the end of the day, I think right now we're called to a larger job, and that is get through the woods. Get mm -hmm. through the woods. Yeah, and we can do that by, yes, indeed, setting an example, but also set an example, Clifton, of joy and of and that, yeah, you want some purpose? Here it is, my friend. That this is hard work, but you've got so, you can respect yourself so much for doing it. And you can admire so much the people that are walking beside you that you have all the meaning. If meaning is nourishment, you have a banquet in front of you. You're busy doing something. You're telling a story, the story of your life through your life, and therefore through that. As far as I'm concerned, saving the world. Well, Mary, thank you so much for joining me today. It, it really, it truly has been uh, a pleasure and uh, soul food, if you will. Mm, good. Thank you. I have loved it. It's been a long time coming, and I hope we get to do it again really soon. Thank you. Mm -hmm.